V1. Welcome to the Flight Safety Detectives. Hosts John Golia and Greg Fife, two of the world's most respected aviation safety experts, talk all things related to aviation and aerospace. This podcast and the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel are brought to you by the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, PAMA, and Avemco Insurance, a world-class provider of aviation insurance and your one-stop for all general aviation insurance needs. Get a customized quote at avemco.com or give them a call at 888-879-0389. Tell them you're a listener of the show and receive a 5% discount. Now it's time to buckle up because it's wheels up for the latest episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Well, Todd, here we are again, just the two of us in another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. And today we have uh, an interesting accident to talk about. It occurred uh, uh, 20 years ago, but uh, it's nonetheless, it's an important accident to uh, learn from. So, And I'm like um, many of the accidents uh, we cover, even if it happened decades ago, uh, there's stuff here that's just as relevant today as it was 20 years ago and things we can learn. This was a August 14, 2000 event in Ironwood, Michigan, involved a Sabreliner twin engine uh, uh, aircraft used to, in this case, transport, it seems to be a, a business executives from uh, Brainerd, Minnesota to the northwest of Minnesota, excuse me, Minneapolis, going to Flint, Michigan, which is just to the northwest of Detroit. And this was a situation where the crew was trying to get ahead of some fairly heavy weather that was happening in the area. Um, they had gotten a weather briefing, filed their, their instrument uh, plan right before takeoff. And there were some fairly challenging storms in the vicinity. And they were using their resources, including um, flight service station uh, information, to figure out how to get around the problem. Uh, they took off about 12 minutes before six local time. And within about 23 minutes of takeoff, they ran into some serious problems. It appears that from the investigation, there was some sort of lightning strike on the aircraft that led to, for various reasons, uh, both engines shutting down in flight. And that's when things started getting, uh, let's just say that more hazardous for the pilots not because of what happened, because there were procedures in place to deal with that sort of thing, but because of the very fact that apparently, from the information that was available, the procedures that should have been executed were not. And, you know, John and I were talking about this before the show, how uh, this might have led to uh, you know, the situation they found themselves in. Yes. So again, again, we have weather. They knew about the weather. And... They were trying to work their way around it because they needed to get their two uh, company people, executives, back to home base, which was in Michigan. So this was meant to be a day trip. They flew out there. They hung around and waited while the businessmen went to uh, conduct their business. And then they came back about five o'clock or so. And it was ready. And they got out of there trying to, a, beat the weather, 
and work around the weather. And it, it was really severe weather, including that they came very close to a level five thunderstorm in, a, in that uh, roughly 23 minutes after takeoff, uh, which resulted in a dual engine flame-up, which in itself is pretty rare. Uh, however, you know, one of the things that as a maintainer that quickly came to my mind is how do you get a dual engine flame out when you're flying in weather and there was heavy, heavy rain falling, heavy precip falling. And normally, I don't know a pilot one that flies a turbine airplane that doesn't have that ignition on continuous when you're in heavy rain, never mind anything else. Uh, because engines have been uh, uh, extinguished because of heavy rain but they can be relighted almost instantly if the igniters are on continuous. And I'd like to point out here that the airplane flight manual did call for continuous ignition being on if you're flying in a situation that has potential turbulence. And certainly around a level five thunderstorm, that was a situation. And John, I think you were better equipped at this. What does it mean to be a, a level five thunderstorm as far as what kind of hazards that would entail? and what the typical action would be of pilots when they're facing that situation. Uh, the typical action for anything short of a big, really big airplane is get out of there. And even big airplanes don't want to go through level flights. I've, I've flown in the cockpit of, of uh, uh, MD-80s and, and 737s, and pilots were picking their way through thunderstorms. And when it came up to big red level five thunderstorms, they they went the other way. I mean, they're not something to be messed with. And in smaller airplanes, they're really problematic. Not only will they flip the airplanes all over the sky, sometimes even turning them inverted, uh, but they have the ability to destroy the structure. And we've lost some pretty famous pilots over the years that were uh, that flew into level fives and had their airplanes come apart in flight. And sometimes even the air traffic controllers will fly you into them because they can't always tell from their radar that it's a level five. So there's, there's, there's all sorts of variables in that decision-making. But anytime you have severe weather and level, potential level five thunderstorms, you should be going the opposite direction. And here's a, at this point, I'd like to point out when it comes to weather forecasts and even weather information from air traffic control, what they're, you're, they're able to tell you, what you're able to see is not instantaneous. There is some level of delay between the information coming into the system and the system creating forecasts and uh, other information for you, the pilot, to use. So, uh, again, around a thunderstorm, be extremely careful. And on the subject of who these pilots were, these were not rookie pilots. The captain was 60 years old, had several thousands of hours of, of, of flight experience, including, I believe, over 1,700 in this particular aircraft. And the first officer was also very experienced with uh, well over 1,500 hours total and at least 175 in this aircraft, which sounds like not much. But again, the combination of a very experienced pilot and a pilot with lesser time in the cockpit of this particular kind of model isn't a high-risk situation typically. However, there were some things that came out in this investigation that definitely increases the risk. Uh, one of them being the use of checklists. And, and John, we, uh, I think you have uh, 
more insight on that than I would in this case. Well, certainly uh, the flight data recorder indicates that they never called for the checklist. So does that mean they were using memory items? Uh, you know, if you have a good memory, you could get away with that. However, there are sounds and indications on the on the cockpit voice recorder that indicate that they didn't follow the checklist. They didn't do what they were supposed to do. I already mentioned the one about moving the ignition to uh, continuous. So if the engine does experience a flame out, while it's still spinning at the at the proper speed, you know, it's starting to slow down, but it's still spinning in the range where you could reignite the engine and uh, continue on. And that's the whole purpose of having continuous ignition. Uh, so they missed that. They didn't turn it on. And they should have had that on continuous from, almost from the time they took off. So uh, there's a deficiency there. The voice recorder also indicates uh, that they were concerned about their load, shedding load, because they were losing their instruments. Well, that's true. You go to the emergency bus on there, and it's going to switch you over to enough instrumentation that you could still fly the airplane. No indication that they did that. No indication that they tried to shed any electrical load to prolong the life of their battery. In fact, the uh, voice recorder records at least two instances of the electrically driven hydraulic pump cycling. Now, normally what happens if you lose hydraulics on an airplane like this, and uh, you're going to have the hydraulic pressure is going to diminish and the electric pump because it's set on in, auto, in an automatic position. When the pressure comes down, the pump will come on, cycle, build the pressure up. And then as the pressure drops down, it will cycle again. So there was a clear indication that that hydraulic pump was on. That's a very high load to put on a battery. Uh, did they need that? I don't know what the checklist said, but I'm sure that, that there was some reference to how they were supposed to handle that portion of it. Now, a couple of things about any accident, really. Uh, over the history of aviation, there have been several levels of protection that are built into the system. One of those levels of protection are procedures to follow in certain situations either non-normal situations or emergency situations. In this particular flight, one of the not-so-normal situations was the weather conditions they were potentially going through. There was something in the flight manual that stated what you should do with the continuous ignition uh, system in a, in a situation like this. That was not on because the cockpit voice recorder did not hear sounds consistent with that. It's unclear whether or not they even had the checklist out because there was no verbal back and forth with that uh, particular checklist. So they might have had it out. They might have even read it, but they certainly didn't mention it to each other. And there's no evidence that that system was engaged. So we're assuming that that checklist wasn't used. On the load shedding aspect of it, uh, the report pointed out that there was nothing in the flight manual or the manual for this particular aircraft that stated what to do in a load shedding situation if you had a dual engine flame out. That being the case, that doesn't mean that there isn't some sort of checklist called out for a dual engine flame out. And there was nothing in the cockpit voice recorder that indicated that they were going through a systematic process of going through a checklist, one person doing the, uh, the, the, the action, the other person confirming the action was done. That sort of back and forth, which is common in the kind of 
dual pilot cockpit that you would have in a high-level aircraft like this. Yes, following procedures has led to a lot of accidents. Uh, not following procedures, I should say, be clear. Uh, not following the procedures has led to many, many accidents. There's a reason why the procedures are in there. Oftentimes the procedures are added to the, to the list as a result of previous accidents. So it's very, very important whether you're flying 91 or 121, doesn't matter and everything in between, doesn't matter. The checklist is an important item to have. If you go to any of the commercial schools that have uh, turbine aircraft test facilities like Flight Safety International or Simuflight or you know, some others, if you go to any of those facilities, you're graded on the use of the checklist. They're not, they're not unique to 91. You're graded on the use of checklists. You know, the charter company that I work for, we always, always require that the, the, the provider that we sent the pilots to give us a report on their use of checklists, among other things. We had a half a dozen items that specifically we wanted to know that the flight crew was proficient in using, and one of which was the checklist. And one of the things you mentioned in passing, I'd like to mention here again, uh, uh, doesn't matter what kind of uh, operation you have, a Part 91 operation, Part 135, Part 121, certain things like using a checklist are key. But one thing i like to point out about this flight, it was operated as a Part 91 flight. However, it was also a turbine-powered aircraft with a certain ca um, passenger capacity. And they were required to have a cockpit voice recorder, which is why we have that information. And we have additional information about this event because even though the pilots did not survive, the two passengers did survive. And they were able to give some key information that uh, pretty much confirmed that there was a lightning strike that occurred that might have led to the dual engine flame out, in part because if the lightning strikes, let's say, near the inlet, and there was in indications from the passenger that there was a lightning strike at the inlet, you could have a shockwave that could lead to um, uh, engine stall and shut down of the engine. And the two engines shut down a couple of seconds apart. So presumably there was a common cause of a lightning strike that caused both engines to go out. Even though they had that situation going on, there was even more checklist type activity, which apparently wasn't followed. One of them being, there were four attempts to relight the aircraft, uh, relight the engines rather. Two of them happened at an altitude above the maximum altitude that the um, manuals call for, for relighting the aircraft. I don't know if this had a direct effect on the ability to relight the aircraft when they're below that altitude, uh, but certainly this was an indication, again, that proper procedures, procedures that are already laid out, were not followed. Doesn't mean that they didn't have a checklist out, but there was nothing in the CVR and nothing in their actions that indicates that they did follow that, that checklist. You know, that's interesting. The, uh, I, I saw that myself and I wanted to do a little more work on that because I've seen that in other accidents where the flight crews attempted to relight an engine uh, above the altitude which was recommended. And then when they tried to relight them within the recommended altitude, uh, they were unable. So I was gonna do a little more digging on that myself. I was curious to see if that, uh, in fact, that uh, correlation exists uh, in other events. 
but I digress. In spite of all the things that happen, in spite of all the apparent not following checklists and following proper procedure, uh, this crew was in a position to land the aircraft. Uh, they were in communication with air traffic control. They were getting vectored to a uh, place to land. They had set the aircraft up properly for the best glide speed for that aircraft. And they actually were directed away from the first airport because of weather conditions. They were going to a second airport, which they were lined up to land in, but they were having uh, navigation issues. First, limited visibility because of the storm. And apparently there were a series of either failures or malfunctions of instrumentation of the aircraft where they were relying on air traffic control to help guide them toward the airport. Yes. So what's the takeaway from this accident? You know, what are we, what are we asking our, our audience to pay attention to? Well, the first thing I would throw out is weather, right? And do your best to avoid weather. If you don't have to go in conditions like this, you know, what would have, what would have been different if this like this crew, instead of rushing to get out before the weather that was running around the airport, if they waited an hour and maybe that storms would have passed and left a better path for them to travel. And if they'd waited an hour, maybe they would have had some time not just to review the weather and the flight path, but to review the procedures for the situation they had. There was a wide area uh, warning going out beforehand of all sorts of convective activity, including the level five thunderstorms. So they, they were well aware that certain weather conditions existed, which call for at least reviewing what your de-icing and anti-icing procedures might be, what your, in, the, in this case for this aircraft, what other procedures should be done if you had an expectation of that kind of weather. Uh, the continuous uh, ignition system being on, that was something recommended if you were going to have turbulence. And again, if you have a thunderstorm, level five or below or above, Turbulence is often part of that, either in the, the storm or nearby. So it would have been prudent, in my opinion, to have at least reviewed the procedures for that. And certainly it would have been prudent to follow the recommended procedures. I don't know if they reviewed the procedures, but it is clear they were, they were rushed for time. It is clear that they were getting things done in order to get back at a certain time for their clients. And I understand that. But at what cost? Right. And, you know, we didn't even mention the fact that they were, were cautioning about uh, major hailstorms in the area. It had been, hail had been falling uh, repeatedly all day long. And we know what kind of a problem hail can cause for an airplane and especially windshields. And of course, the strength in the windshield comes from the electric heat and the electric heat running on your battery. Those, those window heating systems draw heavily so that it could affect your battery longevity uh, severely. You know, they need to get back without generators. That battery becomes critical. Even though their flight was only like 23 minutes out of the airport, they could probably get back in half of that. In fact, when they, uh, they did get back, or they got close to being back uh, 12 miles or it was after the uh, the engine shut down, uh, the, the impact happened about 11 minutes later. And again, that was enough time to uh, make a plan and start executing the plan. It was enough time to make their way to not only the primary emergency uh, airport, but a secondary airport. 
again, because of the other things that went on, especially the other failures, which weren't really detailed, but presumably they couldn't see the airport and their instrumentation for using an approach at at that airport was apparently failing on them. They had a phrase and I'm going to get this uh, phrase exact. They were telling air traffic control that they didn't have any navigability. And John and I were debating what that really meant uh, before the show, but there are certain instruments that you use in order to line up for a landing, ILS uh, landing, GPS, et cetera. And one or more of those were either malfunctioning completely or giving them information that they didn't trust. You know, one of the nearby airports in that area is Alexandria. And I forget how far away it is, but it's right in that general area. And at one point on the voice recorder, they're asking the air traffic controller where that airport was, which I thought was kind of strange. Why would you ask if you've done your homework, you've got your charts available, why would you ask where that airport, which is very close to the airport that you're taking off from, where it is? And uh, air traffic control told them it was uh, at at his six o'clock position, 125 miles, I think he said. I'm going by memory there, but uh, it wasn't that far away. And you mentioned charts a second ago. And another thing to point out, uh, this aircraft was manufactured in 1975. And although there were no photographs from the NTSB depicting what the layout of of the instrument panel was, it's unlikely that this had anything like a glass cockpit like you would see in current aircraft. And they might have had literally a book of uh, a notebook or in their uh, pilot cases, a bunch of charts of approaches and airports, et cetera. And this was a situation where even if they had the documentation, the physical documentation on board, they had a lot going on. They had a bunch of emergencies to take care of. They had deteriorating conditions both outside the aircraft and inside the aircraft. And they may not have had the time or the presence of mind to reach around to the notebook or wherever and to get documentation for this. So in a sense, it's legitimate to say they should have had a better understanding of what was around them. But on the other hand, they were under extreme pressures and they were using the resources that are available to them, air traffic control, to help them out of the situation. But taken as a whole, given the outcome, And given what we know about what happened leading up to that outcome, there are a whole lot of things that could have been done by the pilots that would have prevented this in the first place, including delaying or even canceling the flight altogether. Yes, it's unfortunate. Another unfortunate accident. Well, John, I guess we beat this this accident up pretty good in this flight crew identifying some of the things that that uh, our audience can benefit from in uh, not duplicating the, the actions of this crew. Uh, so with that, I'll let you have the last word, so to speak. Well, one of the things that we do on this show all the time is look for accidents that could give us insights. And it could be a function of, are we looking for a particular kind of accident? We're we looking for a particular model of aircraft. We're we looking for a particular location. Whatever you're flying that you're doing, is there some if there's some aspect of it where you'd like to know more about things that have happened in your area? You want to know what crashes have happened with uh, the actual tail number you had or at incidents with the tail number you had? What's happened at an airport you fly into frequently? What has happened with an aircraft model you're flying, especially if it's a 
older model that may not have too many types flying around today, but certainly had types flying around in large numbers earlier, there could be wealth of information at places like the NTSB uh, database or the FAA database or equivalent databases around the world where you can learn something about what happened before and mistakes and oversights that you can avoid in your current fly. Yeah, and stick to your training. If you've had good training, stick to it. You know, don't think I'm smarter than what, you know, my instructor, I'm smarter than them. I know more about this airplane now than, than they knew at the time. I mean, all of those things, uh, self-imposed uh, either pressure or limitations and oftentimes lead to negative outcomes. So you got to pay attention to that. And as always, I'll say, if you're going to go flying pre-planned before you even get to the airport, do it again when you get to the airport. Do a very thorough pre-flight. If you're in and doubt, you know, get a maintenance guy to walk around with you to let you know what the good pre-flight is. There's a lot of resources out there to talk about pre-flights. You get in the airplane, make sure you check everything in the cockpit like you're supposed to, your instruments and all. And after you take off, put that head on a swivel. Too many mid-airs. Earlier this year, there's been too many mid-air collisions around airports. A lot of involved students with instructors sometimes. So put that head on a swivel and know what's going on around you as well as what's going on in front of you on the instrument panel and fly safely. To listen or watch more episodes of this show, go to FlightSafetyDetectives.com, the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel, or your favorite place to listen to podcasts. To contact John and Greg about the show, send them an email at FlightSafetyDetectives at gmail.com. And remember, for aviation insurance needs, contact Avemco Insurance at avemco.com or give them a call at 888-879-0389. Mention Flight Safety Detectives and receive a 5% discount. Thanks for listening to the Flight Safety Detectives and remember to always fly safe.